0: The sermon text for today is found in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. There it says, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we call upon you asking you to instruct us and teach us. We pray that you would fix our minds upon these things, that we might rest upon your truth, upon your promise that we would rest upon your grace and be uh, relieved and enlivened uh, by this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So previously in the Gospel of John, there Jesus had been in Jerusalem. Uh, back in chapters 7 and 8, uh, it was the time of the Feast of Booths. That's the feast where the Israelites would gather and live in shelters that they would construct, uh, booths to remember their time in the wilderness and how God provided for them in the wilderness with the water and the manna and uh, with the fire in, in the wilderness that they would follow. And Jesus had taught there in Jerusalem during that time and had even used some of the imagery from that uh, feast, uh, the, that he is the one to whom people should come for living water, uh, that he is the light of the world. Well, now we come to another feast, the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication uh, took place in the winter. The feast of Booths was in the fall. The feast of Dedication was in the winter, as it says in verse 22. Uh, Jesus was in Jerusalem at that feast. Uh, a few months later, he would be back in Jerusalem for Passover. Passover was in the spring, just like Easter uh, is today. So you have here six months. Now it's three months until his crucifixion, three more months until the culmination of his earthly ministry. And it was wintertime. There was hostility toward him among the Jews in Jerusalem, especially among the leaders. Like we saw previously, already they had agreed that anyone says that Jesus is the Christ, we'll cast him out of the synagogue. And they had wanted to stone him once before. Uh, They had been seeking to kill him. Now Jesus is back there on the very temple grounds. He's in the colonnade of Solomon, this row of columns and sheltered area on one side of the temple courtyards. It was a grand thing architecturally uh, and was a place in which he was walking. And uh, that is where they catch up to him and gather around him and propose a question to him. Uh, Tell us plainly, are 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 you the Christ? This sounds a lot like they're trying to get a conviction, that they're trying to get him to say, I am the Christ, so that they can therefore uh, get him in trouble. It doesn't say that explicitly, but they do want a very plain statement that Jesus says, I am the Christ. But what was this Feast of Dedication before we go further? It was an annual feast celebrated on the 25th day of Kislev, So that's roughly equivalent to our month of December, 25th day of that month. And it lasted for eight days. Its name in Hebrew is Hanukkah, and that's what it's better known today uh, as. Hanukkah means dedication. Uh, That's why it's translated that way, Feast of Dedication here. The actual Greek word for it meant renewal. But the the idea of the feast was dedication because it was instituted by the assembly of the Jews under Judas Maccabees to commemorate the rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian king. This is in the time between the Testaments uh, who had come in, who had sought to turned the Jews away from the God of their fathers unto pagan practices. There were martyrs who stood for the faith as well as those who compromised. And at one point, Antiochus had the temple desecrated. And the Jews recognized this is the abomination of desolation that Daniel had prophesied. Daniel prophesied that uh, a figure would come and take away the sacrifices. He sacrificed, I think it was uh, pig flesh on the altar, uh, desecrated in various ways, brought in paganism there. And for three years or so, it remained uh, in that condition. But after victories had been won by Judas Maccabees and his brothers, uh, they were able to come back to the temple and purify it. And then on that 25th day of that month, uh, rededicate it uh, to the worship of God. And they then instituted this annual feast to remember it. Uh, to remember this victory and this rededication of the temple. It was celebrated similar to the Feast of Booths, which they had been unable to celebrate when it had been desecrated, um, which was also for eight days. Celebrated with sacrifices and gladness and palm branches and lights. Lights make sense because it was dark that time of year. Um, Later, the significance, perhaps already in the first century, be connected to the legend that the lights in the temple had gone on for eight days, even though they only had one day's uh, amount of oil there with them, and so it was, it was a miracle. Uh, it doesn't show up in the earlier records, but it makes sense that lights were part of the uh, ceremony, remembering the lighting of the lampstand that, that certainly was in the temple. And so it's at that point where Jesus has this discussion with the Jews, and the main point that emerges from this conversation, if it's a okay to call it a conversation, this debate, uh, was that the salvation of the sheep is certain. The sheep you're referring to, to Christ's people, to God's elect, that their salvation is certain, for it is the unified work of of the Father and the Son, who are one. So we have here statements about the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. Uh, that Jesus and the Father are one, there's one God, and that they're both God, and, and, so the, and they are one, as well as kind of the practical implication of that, or the application of that, which is that they are saving uh, as one work. Uh, they are saving the same people, and that uh, no one can snatch the sheep out of their hands In verses 24 through 25, we have the question, tell us plainly whether you are the Christ. And he says, I have told you, but you haven't believed. Uh, Their uncertainty was due to unbelief. It wasn't because Jesus hadn't already made it clear in his teachings, by his uh, deeds, by his miracles. All of this had been testifying to the fact that he was the Christ, the Savior, the Anointed One. But rather, they did not, they did not, uh, understand this or they were uncertain because they did not believe what Jesus had told them. And why did they not believe? We find that in verse 26. They did not believe because they were not among his sheep. They did not belong to his sheep. They were not of the sheep. That is why they did not believe. Now, notice it's this way and not the other way around. It's not they were not of his sheep because they didn't believe. It's that they did not believe because they were not of the sheep. If they were of the sheep, they would have believed. But they were not of the sheep. They remained in their natural state. They heard the word but did not believe. Their unbelief was sinful. It was culpable. Jesus had told them they had the knowledge... And their actions were free. They did what they wanted, but they rejected Christ. They ought to have believed, but they did not. But that is the way it is with sinful men. The only people who will believe Jesus are his sheep. And they will believe because they are his sheep. We get into that a little further in verses 27 through 29. That the sheep, again we're not speaking of literal sheep, we're talking about people that are part of the flock of Jesus, you know, whom he leads and protects and feeds and gives life to, that the sheep of Jesus have been chosen by the Father, given to the Son, that he may give them eternal life. We, here we get greater insight into how people are saved. How are sinners saved? Why is their is there salvation certain? Does it depend on them? Can they fall away? We have these things addressed in this passage. Those whom the father gave to the son will know his voice. They'll believe they'll follow the shepherd because they know his voice because they are the elect, because they are chosen, because they have been entrusted into the hands of Jesus by the father. They will believe. There it says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. How did Jesus get the sheep? He, the Father gave them to the Son. Was that before or after he gives them eternal life? It's logically before. He gives them eternal life because they have been given to him. This is a charge that he has from the Father. I want you to save these people, and therefore Jesus saves them and gives them eternal life draws them to himself. The Father also draws them to the Son. We saw that in chapter 6 where Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So how, what is it that draws the sheep to answer and to follow the good shepherd it is the work of god lest anyone should boast it is of god's grace that they respond the work of salvation is not the work of man or the will of man or the will of the flesh it is the work of the trinity of the triune god there is one they are one god they work as one they have one will one purpose it's not like The Father chooses to save some people, but the Son tries to save everyone, and the Spirit tries to save less than that. No, they're all working on the same project, for they are one God. To just review, the Father chooses a people, predestines them to life in Christ, giving them to the Son, consecrating the Son for this work of being their Redeemer. The Son, then, what does he do for the sheep? He lays down his life for the sheep. He gives up his life to death that he might give them eternal life through the Spirit. The Spirit then is that life-giver, the living water that flows from Christ. He brings them life from Christ. He is sent by the Father and the Son so that he can draw so that they draw sinners to Christ by the Spirit. So We are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, given life by the Spirit. So what is the way of salvation? How are sinners saved? What is the way that God has appointed? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. So we ought to believe in him, right? If you want to be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus and rest upon him with confidence. Having come to him, you will be received. You will never be cast out. And no one will snatch you from his hands. No one will snatch you from the Father's hands. You are in good hands if you have come to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus follows up this teaching, this statement of of security, of assurance, of confidence, by a theological statement, a statement about Jesus and the Father. In verse 30, Jesus says... I and the Father are one. Now, the application of this truth is the unity and certainty of salvation, Uh, that this is a a work which the Father and Son are perfectly unified on, that therefore it is certain, uh, ensured by them. But the meaning is more than the Father and the Son work together. You know, you and I might work together on something and have the same purpose, and Jesus is saying something more than that. Uh, I'm sure the Jews would have said, yes, I will work with God, you know, uh, I I will have a common purpose with God and work with him on this project, but that didn't lead them to stone each other thinking that they were claiming to be God. Jesus was claiming something more than simply, you know, the Father and I have uh, the same idea, or, you know, that we are, have our purposes aligned. It's that, but it's more than that. The meaning is that Jesus is God, the same God as the father. He's not a rival God. He's not another God. He's not calling people to disobey the first commandment, have no other gods before me. He is the same God. He and the father are one. He is not a rival to him. He is one with the father. As we say in the creed, he is of one substance with the father. Jesus does not say that he is the father, as if there's no distinction between the persons, not in the way that uh, I'm a father and a brother and a son, just different relationships in which a person is. But uh, he doesn't say, I am the father. He says the father and I are one. They are one God. Two different persons, different, uh, in that sense, can relate to each other, but are the same God. They are one Among other things, the one here is grammatically neuter, not masculine. We might almost say that they are one thing uh, instead of one person. Both partake fully of the whole divine nature, the whole divine essence. You cannot divide God up. Uh, You know, human nature, you have lots of different people in which you can find this nature. Um, And yet it's different with God. God is one. Uh, You cannot divide him up. He's not composed of parts. It's not like you get more God when you put the Son and the Father together. Uh, But rather, all that God is, is fully possessed by each. They are both God, the same God. There is only one God who is infinite and perfect in every way. He is not only undivided, but indivisible. He is not composed of parts. That would imply imperfection. He is infinite. Can you divide an infinite thing? Uh, he has one will. He is not divided. One will that is shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is no, has no rival. And the son, Father and the Son are one because they are both the one and only true God. Of course, we can say more fully with the rest of Scripture that God is three persons, not just two. He is the Father, his only begotten Son, and the Spirit of the Father and the Son. These three are one God. This is the same gospel that begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How does it end? Near the end, Thomas says to the Son, to Jesus, my Lord and my God. In the gospel from beginning to end, in the middle, uh, proclaims that Jesus is God, one with the Father. Well, then, of course, the Jews react with hostility. They understand Jesus correctly. They say, you make yourself to be God. Well, technically speaking, he made himself man. He didn't make himself God. He was God from all eternity. But yes, he was claiming to be God. And they understood his words correctly in that respect. And so they pick up stones to stone him. He corrects them. Oh, are you going to stone me for one of the good works that I've done? Which one? Which one of these good works do you want to stone me for? Healing the person or healing that person? But they said, no, not for a good work, for blasphemy, because you make yourself God. But then Jesus has an argument from Scripture. It's not the type of argument you might, would have, might have expected, um, but it is an argument that would keep them at bay, uh, that would correct their irrational hostility that they come after him without evaluating the situation that they have a prejudice against him that they are not heeding the works that has been testifying to his deity and to his divine mission and so he argues from the lesser to the greater Uh, he says is it not written in your law i said you are gods now this is a quote from psalm 82 Uh, in which it is addressed. There's debate on whether he's addressing uh, angelic beings or whether he's addressing humans. It's more likely he's addressing human judges, civil magistrates who are called gods in the sense that they execute divine judgment. uh, And so metaphorically are called gods. Goes on to say that yet, yet you will die like men, though you be gods. But he says, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? It's a comparison of how much more if, if there's a sense in which they could be called you are gods and not be blaspheming, what are you going to say about me who have been consecrated by God sent into the world? You are acting uh, rashly in coming to this conclusion and seeking to stone me. There's also an interesting comparison here, knowing the, the whole gospel of John, that he speaks of those to whom the word of God came, and now he, is, he himself is the word of God who has come. Uh, what are you going to say about him? How can we not say that, that he is God in the true and non-metaphorical sense? Also learn here that Jesus has a very high doctrine of scripture, that Jesus appeals to scripture to solve the argument, er, to solve the debate, that he appeals to scripture and he says scripture cannot be broken. He argues from a very small part of scripture, a phrase, really a word. If the word was different, you know, the argument wouldn't have worked. I said, you are God's. He has a high doctrine of Scripture. What he's saying by saying it cannot be broken is that every word, every teaching, every claim, all of Scripture is true and authoritative. Every word is true and authoritative in what it asserts, that it cannot become nullified, uh, that it cannot be abolished or broken. Now, Jesus says of himself that he was consecrated. What does that mean? What does it mean to, for the Son of God to be consecrated? Well, he was consecrated as the Christ. Christ means anointed one. Now, he was set apart for a particular office. He didn't become the Son of God, but he did, uh, was appointed as the Savior, whom we did not originally need due to our creation. It's because of, because of our sin that we needed a Savior. And so he was consecrated. He was set apart as our prophet, priest, and king as the savior but it's also significant that he is describing himself as one consecrated because he's at the the feast of dedication Uh, consecrated would be the type of thing you'd refer to the temple being consecrated for the worship of God but now one greater than the temple was there Uh, one who is the Christ himself that had been consecrated by God and sent into the world that presumes that he existed before he came into the world that he existed before his incarnation, before he was born as a man, that he came into this world with a purpose sent by God, that he is uh, God come in the flesh. And then finally, he states in 30, verse 38, uh, appealing to them to believe the works that he is doing, the works of my father that I'm doing, that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. If his argument seemed like he was backpedaling a little bit, now he comes right back to it. (laughs) I and the father in one. Oh, hold up. Uh, You know, don't get too angry yet. scripture says this, and I hope you understand that the father is in me and I'm in the father. Um, And of course, then they try to arrest him again. Uh, he's, he's not backing down. In fact, he's revealing even a little bit more. It's another remarkable statement of their unity, uh, their oneness, that he is doing the works of the Father, that uh, to be in the Son's hands is in, to be in the Father's hands. Later, he'll see if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father, you know that he is uh, God himself. And yet, there's distinction between the two. Would you say that you are in yourself and yourself is in you? You know, like if you're just speaking of a person, this language wouldn't make sense. But to be in the Father and the Father in him does imply both unity and a distinction. Uh, The Father and the Son uh, mutually indwell one another. They share, after all, the same identical divine essence, all the attributes of God and its infinite perfection. Uh, You cannot separate them apart from one another, although you can distinguish them from one another. And therefore, also the works of Jesus are the works of his Father. Demonstrates this unity. His words and his works testify to his identity. He says, if I simply claim this, you don't need to believe me. But I claim this, I testify to it, I do these works, this is a claim with authority, with testimony. The Father is testifying to me, I testify in this way If you don't even believe me, at least believe the works that you might understand and know this. So then again, they attempt to arrest Jesus. He escapes from their hands. He goes away so that they don't kill him. They don't arrest him. His time was not yet. And then he went away back to where things started. Back where he had been baptized by John. By the Jordan River. And at that point, some people come to him. They remember the testimony of John the Baptist, and they believe in him. They said, John didn't do any signs, but everything he said came true. This is the Lamb of God. Uh, This is the one who is before him, who would come, uh, the promised one. And so they believe in him. May you also believe in him. This is what Jesus desires. This is what John desired in writing this gospel. You might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, revealing in greater perfection now in the new covenant an understanding of you and of your ways and of your truth, of your trinitarian nature of you and your son and the holy spirit one God now and forever we pray that you would grant us a a communion with you that continues to grow and nourish us from day to day that you would also cause your people to be one uh, to reflect uh, your unity and our unity with you we pray that you would strengthen us in this life given freely to us and that you would call in the sheep, those who continue to walk astray, that they might be gathered in the flock and in the hands of the good shepherd. We pray this in his name. Amen.